You are listening to the San Antonio Zen Center Dharma Talks. The San Antonio Zen Center is supported solely by donation, so that everyone can participate in our offerings and programs, regardless of income. If you are able, please consider making a donation to SAZC through the donation button on our site, sanantoniozen.org, or by visiting paypal.me slash sanantoniozen. Thank you for your practice and enjoy the talk. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, can everyone hear me okay? Okay, good. So there's a story in the canon, in the Suzuki Roshi canon, that one day uh, while he was at Tassajara, uh, he and some students were moving stones. Suzuki Roshi really uh, enjoyed working with rocks, um, apparently so much so that he one of his fingers was mangled. So whenever he did a gasho, the uh, his little pinky was kind of stuck to the side from uh, getting mashed, moving rocks. And uh, if you ever get a chance to go to Tassajara, uh, he, there's a little rock garden of his in front of the Kaisando or the, uh, the Founders Hall. So one day he's working with, with, uh, with some students moving rocks. It was a hot day, um, as I recall the story goes. And it, it, um, at some point they, they took a break <clears throat> and, <clears throat> pardon me, and um, <clears throat> all the, the young men who, are working, who were working with him just kind of fell out. You know, they were just so tired that they just fell out. And Suzuki Roshi seemed fine. And <clears throat> one of the students said, Suzuki Roshi, I, I, I don't understand. You know, we're, we're young and in good shape and we're wiped out. And you're not so young. And you seem fine. And he said, I rest in every moment. I think it also helped that Suzuki Roshi had worked with rocks for a long time and really understood um, how, to, how to work with them. Uh, apparently, as this, um, uh, another story goes that uh, a student needed to, split a rock, needed to, to split a rather large boulder and had no idea how to do it. And Suzuki Roshi climbed all over the rock and he said, um, put your wedges in here, here, and here. And then the rock split very easily. So he had a good working relationship with stones. But really this, this, the spirit of, Resting in every moment really points to um, taking refuge in the breath 
or in the body. And whenever we talk about the word refuge, different ideas may come up as to what that means. Literally, uh, it comes from the verb refugiary, which is to, to flee or to fly back to. So in our practice, in our meditation practice, the breath is the refuge. It's the place that we return to whenever we lose count or whenever we get distracted by stories or get preoccupied with something else. The place that we fly back to is return to is probably a better way to think of refuge in terms of our Western idea of how we uh, always returning to the present moment, we return to the breath. And with that as our focus in returning to the breath, actually what we're actually doing is returning to the body. I think this is one of the one of the uh, reasons that we put so much emphasis on on sitting posture in Zen. Um, in the Vipassana tradition, uh, you don't get a lot of uh, posture instruction. You kind of have to sort it out on your own. And in some of the Vipassana retreats that I've attended over the years, um, I've, I've seen folks putting themselves through a lot of unnecessary pain in terms of not, not knowing how to attend to the body, not knowing how to attend to the posture. So I think that's one of the real strengths of Zen is um, really paying attention to the body, paying attention to the posture so that we can sit in a sustainable way. If we sit in such a way that we begin experiencing a lot of pain, particularly when we're new to practice, if we begin, if, if we uh, are sitting, experiencing a lot of pain, then that can actually unintentionally serve as a discouragement. A lot of folks are often surprised by how much physical discomfort there can be in the beginning while the body makes its adjustment to sitting in this posture that we're not used to. But in, in our sitting posture, when we sit up straight, 
we allow the skeleton to do the job that it's there for, like the frame of a house. And by paying attention to our posture, it serves as the, the foundation, really the foundation for the breath. If we can sit and if we can find a, a, a posture position that um, the discomfort isn't distracting and that it's sustainable, we uh, really can learn how to follow the breath and learn to work with the breath. I think one of the, the, the beauties of having breath as focus of meditation um, is that it can be both a conscious and an unconscious function. It's one of the few things that we can either just unconsciously, we can get out of the way and the body just just knows how to breathe or we can hold our breath, for example. So often in the beginning, we can have a bit of a difficult relationship in sitting with the breath because suddenly we're aware of it. We're still, we're not being distracted. Oh, they want me to focus on the breath, but does that mean I breathe through my nose, through my mouth? Does that mean I take long, exaggerated breaths? Does that mean I take short, shallow breaths? <clears throat> and the next thing we know, we're, we're, our breaths, we're just kind of all over the place. We're not even paying attention to the breath anymore. We're so fo focused on what we think we should be happening with the breath that we get a little sidetracked. And it really is um, no coincidence that um, we have the word shin in Japanese, which is body-mind or mind-body. It's not mind or body. Right? The, the, um, the word uh, yoga, the yoga, uh, <clears throat> original meaning was to yoke, like yoking, uh, uh, to tie something together, right? Or like the yoke on an ox. Um, and you know, with sheen, the mind and body are completely yoked together. So we have the saying, Free your mind and the body will follow. But when we are returning to the breath, when we are returning to the body, actually what we're doing is we are freeing the body and then the mind will follow. So by learning 
how to sit, learning how to trust the breath, learning how to follow the breath, things begin to slow down. I would even often, I would <clears throat> even say that when we free the body, uh, we're actually freeing the mind completely. We're not thinking about what has to be done, what should be done. We're just following the breath. So in taking, in taking refuge, the refuges are um, the first three precepts and the bodhisattva precepts, taking refuge in Buddha, taking refuge in Dharma, and taking refuge in Sangha. Take, taking uh, refuge in Buddha as, as reality. This is, this is things as they are. Taking refuge in the, in the Dharma, the teachings, or the law of the way things are. And then the Sangha is support. But what we're actually doing when we're taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha is we're taking refuge in the breath. We're embodying the Buddha. We're embodying reality. We are in accord with reality when we take refuge in the breath, when we return to the breath in the body. We are embodying the teachings. And I would say almost most importantly, we are embodying support. We are both giving and receiving support of the Sangha. We're breathing together, sitting together, bowing and chanting together. So very intimately, whether we are in person or whether we're looking at a screen. And in being connected with the Sangha, breathing together, we're connected with everyone. Taking refuge in the breath, we're connected with all totality. There's a, a notion that whenever we breathe, we are breathing in a molecule of air that the Buddha has breathed. I think um, sometimes Buddhists like to think of this notion and kind of have a pleasant feeling about it. The reality is, is every time we breathe in, breathe 
um, breathe in. If this is the case, if this is actually true, that whenever we breathe, we're breathing in a molecule of air that the, that the Buddha breathed, we're also breathing in a molecule of air that every being who, who has ever existed and breathed has breathed. Whether it's someone we admire or don't admire, whether they've done good things or unwholesome things, we can't escape it. So it's, it's this intense intimacy. that's completely inescapable. So it's really kind of, in a way it's not worth picking and choosing. And this taking refuge in the breath, taking refuge in the body is the only way that we can help. It's the only way that we can be of service. So as you heard me talk about a few weeks ago, we have the image of Avalokiteshvara, she has a thousand hands, each with a different tool to address the, the cries or the suffering of the world. She has a thousand hands with a thousand tools. She doesn't have a thousand thoughts about how to do it. So this is, this is inaction. This is an enacted practice. It's an embodied practice. A few years ago when, um, <clears throat> when some of us were, were um, walking on the Camino de Santiago, uh, I was walking one day, I think I was by myself, and a uh, young woman, and a young man passed me. And the young man was talking. And <clears throat> he said to, to her as, as, as they passed, he, um, he said, I don't want to get to be I think it was 27, 27 years old and not have things figured out. And I thought, oh, well, you know, the cynical part of me thought, well, good luck with that. <laughs> you know. Um, and then later I thought, well, you know, if you can just walk, that's gonna that's gonna go a long way. Rather than just trying to figure things out, just walk. And anyone who has ever walked long distance like that knows that after a while, uh, it, it's an intensely physical experience. It's not the same as hiking the Appalachian Trail or the Pacific Crest Trail, but uh, walking for distances like that without a lot of distraction, it's, it's an intensely physical thing. And after a while, you're just picking them up and laying them down. 
This is re returning to the breath, returning to the body, returning to what's actually happening. This is when we are most in tune with what is actually happening. Not with what we think should be happening. Not with uh, the expectations of having everything figured out at a certain age. Or thinking, why isn't the world in accord with the way that I think? All of that is really irrelevant. We come back to the breath, we come back to the body. Someone asked Katagiri Roshi what practice was, and he said, it's something you do under all circumstances. So when we're sitting zazen, it's kind of like, you know, the zendo and zoom, this is our kind of our training ground in a way. Our training ground of how we come back to the body over and over again, really building that, that um, those wholesome habits, returning to the breath. So that way, whenever we walk out the door of this center or our home, we can be of service without an idea of being of service. Just showing up, just showing up. And this is really what our zazen is asking of us, is to show up. Our breath is saying, I'm right here. I'm right here. I don't need to be fixed. I don't need to be corrected or adjusted. When we're with someone who's dying, we are so acutely attuned to their breath, to the nuance of it. Just being present with them as they're going through this transition. It's a very intimate thing when we can do this, whether we can be present with our own breath or the breath of others without needing to fix anything, but just showing up. And in this way, we're taking refuge in their breath as well, too, because we're taking, taking refuge in our breath. So over and over, we come back. We come back, we just show up for the breath as it expresses itself. Our body as it, as it expresses itself. Nothing to be fixed, nothing to be corrected, nothing to be judged or appraised. It's just one continuous refuge over and over.
Okay, thank you very much. Um, so if uh, anyone has any questions or comments.